Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Graham Luster, Catherine Fulton, and host Michael Lerner. We are grateful that our friends have showed up for this special conversation between Catherine Fulton and Graham Luster. Uh, We're very honored to have Graham here visiting from Scotland, Uh, a very extraordinary contributor to thinking about the future and specifically in our sense, thinking about the global poly crisis, which is um, uh, a central interest of our work at Commonweal. Catherine will introduce Graham and my a job is to introduce Catherine. Uh, Catherine is the vice chair of the board at Commonweal, um, and she has been a leading strategic advisor to foundations, high net worth donors, major nonprofits, and rising social entrepreneurs for the past 20 years. She spent a decade building Monitor Institute into one of the nation's leading social sector consulting firms and has published and spoken widely on the future of philanthropy, impact investing, and social change. Um, Previously, she was a journalist and an entrepreneur, uh, co-founding an award-winning alternative newspaper in the American South, where she grew up. And uh, her conviction that the internet would transform journalism led her to join the Global Business Network, where she advised leaders from more than a dozen industries. So there's a great deal more I could say, but the one thing I will say is that uh, one of my highest praise phrases for friends is that someone is an adult in the room. And it's an honor that I uh, bestow on very few people. And I'm honored and grateful to introduce one of my beloved friends and partners in the work, an adult in the room, Catherine Fulton. I'll, I'll see if I can disprove that. Just a little piece of time. Um, before I had any idea how to introduce myself, I used to say, um, I'm a Southern belle who never rang. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I, I am so excited to be here with all of you and to be, I have dreamed of the day that Graham Lester would come and visit Commonweal or would mm-hmm. would visit uh, e- e- virtually one of the Omega webinars or uh, something I've known Graham for about 20 years um, that we're, we've been part of the part of a sort of loose collection of people around the world um, trying to invent and use new ways of helping communities and organizations and individuals adapt to a very new time. And uh, I think Graham, whenever I feel stuck. Uh, for the last at least five or six years, um, and I want somebody to open a new window in my mind or heart or soul, I, I, I try to arrange a call with, uh, with Graham and never fails, actually. I'm usually scribbling notes <laughs> furiously and say, would you send me that? Um, on the table here are an array of books. I have half of a bookshelf of the things that Graham has written in the last 20 years. And one of the things that I want to... Um, 
what I want to introduce you to is the arc of the work, because he's basically been working on the poly crisis for, uh, since 2000. Um, and one of the things that, um, and I'm going to walk through his, his biography a little bit more in a second, but I wanted to start, I, I, was, I was looking through all these things this morning and various notes, and, and um, one of the things that's so interesting to me about the work that Graham and his colleagues have done is um, to begin to wrap our, our ourselves around what are the what are the things we have to be good at and better at in the 21st century than we than we were before. Um, it, it, he's called them 21st century competencies, um, and here are three three essential conditions. Um, you cannot learn without action, gaining direct experience. <coughs> You cannot learn without reflection the capacity to perform the double task. And you cannot learn alone, no solo climbers. And, you know, to me, that actually uh, captures beautifully what Commonweal is about um, in terms of the service, the work that is done in so many ways, the, 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 all the spaces, including here at the New School for Reflection, and the fact that this is a, a growing and extraordinary community. Um, so, Graham, welcome. Um, before, we, before we dive into this, would you just help us understand a little bit? You, you came to this moment in 2000 where you wanted to create a conversation about the new things, but you came to it. You, you had been a diplomat, you were a cellist. I mean, tell us a little bit about, about how you got to that moment. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, everyone, for showing up. It's a pleasure to be here. You, you said you dreamt of me coming to Commonweal. I, I suspect I've probably dreamt of coming to Commonweal as well without realising it, and uh, have been drawn here partly from a mutual collection, not only with Catherine and some other of her colleagues, uh, but through a mutual friend with Michael of Don Michael, um, who will come on to a little later. Um, it's interesting talking about the poly crisis, uh, and yes, I guess we have been working on it for 20 years. Dawn had been working on it for at least 50 years, <laughs> probably before us. Um, how did I come ac across it? Um, my background, I'm, I have a very conventional background. I was brought up in southern England. Uh, I went to a a, what is called a public school, but is actually a private school uh, on a scholarship. Uh, so I was one of those, you know, the, the next generation of social mobility, finding myself in these wonderful places of learning. Uh, I went to Cambridge University. Uh, I went there to study mathematics. Uh, I graduated with a degree in English literature. <laughs> um, I went from there into the foreign service. So very traditional. Um, and I slowly, I, I slowly lost faith in the ways that I was encountering to improve the state of the world, uh, particularly policy. Uh, my work in, uh, in the Foreign Service was mostly around Hong Kong, China, so handing Hong Kong back to China, 1997, uh, and then the European Union, uh, the Maastricht Treaty. So these were all, in retrospect, I can see this was about governance and, and how people learn to live together. Um, Hong Kong, China was about one country, two systems. 
the European Union was about, you know, it's now, what is it, 25, 26 countries, many systems, uh, but one uh, entity. Um, and I, I, I detected a note of cynicism about whether any of this was really possible. So I looked to get out of um, uh, the foreign service and the civil service into what, what I called policy-making outside government, so into the world of the think tanks. I thought, ah, that'll be more interesting, more creative, more scope. Um, and that took, me, that took me to Scotland, which was about to, um, with a change of government in the UK, it was about to set up its own political institutions, its own parliament, its own government. I thought, ah, perfect place to, um, to experiment and innovate. So I moved to Scotland to follow that, uh, that track. I discovered after a few years that even with... <laughs> You know, a blank slate, new institutions, um, history of creativity, small country, actually quite well funded. Um, it was still really difficult to get anything to change. And that led to a deeper inquiry um, with the likes of Catherine and others. I, I started going around saying, what am I missing? What am I missing here? You know, why is the dial not moving? Um, and I slowly discovered from those conversations, well, you may be missing the complexity of the current circumstances. This was 99, 2000. Um, you may be missing that, that uh, you know, the, this, we are actually living in a world we don't understand and can't control. Um, that's, the nature of, that's the nature of the beast now. Um, and all our policy and our actions are based on the opposite assumptions. <laughs> that if we don't understand, we'll crunch a few more numbers, do a bit more research, and we will. <laughs> uh, and once we do, we can pull the lever and all the right things will happen. There will be no unintended consequences and everything will be fine. <laughs> and I didn't think that was true anymore. So that's, that led to setting up the International Futures Forum, um, bringing together a group of people who saw that as the challenge. You know, this is the world we don't understand and can't control. And we need to restore the capacity for effective action in that world. You know, not tune out and, and double down on the old stuff. Mm -hmm. um, although we need all of that, uh, you know, let, let's, let's pioneer some new ways of thinking. Um, so that was back in 2001. And um, we, we, we realised fairly early on, to give ourselves credit, that if you thought you'd cracked it, you were back in the old world. You know, oh, we've got it now. Here's the answer. Well, you're back in the world that you do understand and can control, and that's not the one we're living in. Mm. So, in a way, you know, fated to keep this work going forever. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the um, uh, International Futures Forum was organized as a series of inquiries, mm. and they were, it was done around adaptation in governance, sustainability, consciousness, and economy. Mm. And one of the things I think has really characterized your work in an extraordinary way from the beginning was a, a profound awareness of and sophistication about psychology. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. what, what I want to do in this conversation is walk through the arc mm. of this exploration that he just set up because I think a lot of the things that Graham has already been doing for a long time are very much, you know, are, are inputs of sort to the very things that we're wrestling with now. How, how do we understand what the poly crisis is mm -hmm. and how do we figure out what in the world we do do in the face of, of that? I mean, one of the lovely... Um, 
uh, one of the lovely things that that uh, this this man Don Michael that was a friend of of of, of our Michaels and a friend of of mine and Catherine's and many people he died in 2000 and uh, he was um, he was part of the um, uh, uh, the Club of Rome, all of the work that was done mm. then, and they did, he did work for a long time, and he gave this extraordinary talk at the very end of his life that should, should that we all have a chance to summarize what we believe in the way that he did. It was a, it was mm-hmm. a, a, a talk at Saybrook um, at, in 1998, in which he begins the talk with the Sufi story about the blind people and the elephant that we all know, and and um, uses that metaphor and you know throughout. And and one of the things, Graham, I noticed that when you describe yourself, you use that wonderful thing from from the end of uh, of Don's um, that we're all trying to. I just had it right here that making we're trying a to, difference. Yeah, making the, a yeah. difference in the face of all that stands in the way. How of How do making we make a, a difference in the face yeah. of all that stands in the way of making yeah. a difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, mm-hmm. uh, we'll 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 share a little bit more of what Don came to in that in that essay as we go along. Um, but what I'm what I'm hoping to do is 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 walk through the questions and the things that you did over time, mm-hmm. working to the place of now we're at the poly crisis. Graham is doing some new work on mm-hmm. what do we do in an existential crisis. And um, is thinking about writing the next thing he's going to write is is about the poly crisis and and what do we do, um, and and so you started after you did this work the very mm. first thing <laughs> that they did I always have loved this little book, it's called Ten Things to Do in a Conceptual Emergency. <laughs> this this was the entire report of the Intellectual <laughs> Futures International Futures Forum, right? And it is um, it, it, it when it came out. Um, the uh, it, it you know you, it just it was full of all these things and um, it was your first list of ten things um, and um, <laughs> and I, I just want to pull one of them out um, I love this one um, practice social acupuncture so this may be a concept that some of you have heard we assume big problems need big solutions. But we know that in today's operating environment, big actions simply lead to bigger unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. You cannot control complex systems, only disturb them. And even a small disturbance, artfully designed, can have large systemic effects. We call this social acupuncture. For the most part, we, may, we remain trapped in a world in which top-down doesn't work and bottom-up doesn't add up. Um, that's a, that, I quoted that line in every speech I gave for years <laughs> because, uh, you know, we're now in this place where actually bottom-up mm. can add up more, but it needs certain yeah, things in yeah. order to do so. Yeah. Um, but, but you did this, and what, what then happened? You wrote these insights, and they need to figure yeah. out what to begin to do. What did you do? So that, yeah, the first IFF program was for two years. We had mm-hmm. two years funding to investigate that question, uh, how to take more effective action in a world we don't understand and can't control. I always now, I have to add effective, responsible and humane action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we've, we've learned over time. I think at the time, 20 years ago, in the golden age of the past, that was taken as red, but it no, it no longer is. Mm-hmm. Effective, responsible and humane. Um, 
so that was the that was the brief. Um, the first, and there were two things actually that came out of, at the end of that mm-hmm. that little book, Ten Things to Do in a Conceptual Emergency, um, and the little deck of cards. Uh-huh. So that was the that was the result of this, co- this deck. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that came out of that. that yeah. So that was the result of two years of effort. Um, <laughs> and believe me, it was an effort. Um, these are, by the way, these are provocation cards that you use in any conversation. Here, draw one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he knows what they are, so he, if he sees it. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, since I'll he wrote that them. one. Yeah, what is that one? Oh, uh, what is that one? So that's a, that's a shoal of fish with one that looks a bit odd. And it says, tolerate differences in order to discover richer wholeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, we weren't sure. I mean, we set up as a, as, a, as a two-year project of the think tank I was then running. Um, and the first year was inquiring into the state of the world and are we all as confused as I'm willing to admit I am. So they, these, these, are, these are wise people in the room. Um, and a number of them said, this is, this is really great, because usually I turn up everywhere. I'm the keynote speaker. People can, uh, you know, come up to me ask afterwards and ask me for the, the answers. And I really don't know. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing anymore. And this is the only place I can come where I'm, I'm able to admit that. So it was, a re- it was an incredible learning environment, just a huge, you know, huge privilege um, to be with all those great people. So there was a lot of learning in the first year. And then uh, somebody said, we need to test test this, find out what we're good for, was the phrase. We need to find out what we're good for. Let's find some people with some messy, intractable problems and see if we can help. Um, so we did. Um, and that's where actually where the cards came from. Okay, so how are we going to show up with our new knowledge that is barely articulated yet? Um, so we went back through the kind of records of meetings, looking for anything that was like tolerate differences in order to re- discover richer wholeness. You know, that's pro- somebody probably said that <laughs> in a meeting. We thought, all right, there, here are some problems. So we took that, we put those on cards and took them with us into these situations, um, and used them to, to to kind of prompt our get ourselves out of our habitual ways of of knowing, being, noticing, um, and you know those those those. Uh, encounters went well and a num- number of the people that we we've been working with said what about those cards could we have a set please so that's where they came from and um there's only one that's been added since which we might come on to later um so we had done the thinking we had done the we'd done the practice and then we published a little report at the end 10 things to do to do this was always about action 10 things to do um and we you know, didn't want to give up the rich learning experience. You know, we're going to carry on. You know, we can't just stop here. It's not that we, this is not the answer. This is not the answer. We've got to keep learning and practicing. So we carried on um, and the book went out. And um, this is not a joke. People did start phoning up saying, uh, is that the IFF? Yes. I think we've got a conceptual emergency. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've got a conceptual emergency. I've just read your little book. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where we are. Can you help? Um, so we went on, still in the spirit of learning, um, um, you know, testing ourselves in, in, you know, difficult, messy, complex situations, um, learning all the time, trying to refine our method. So that would be, I would say that was the kind of the first seven years 
of well, our, the of thing, our journey. Uh, the thing I want to, we're not going to do it blow by blow. I'm going to mm. hit the things that I think are really, the, the beginning was really interesting. Mm. And then you came upon ah, transformative yes. innovation. Yeah. Otherwise known as the three horizons, which people may have known. known. So, mm -hmm. talk about so the three horizons that are used all over the world now, in the way that they're used, started at the International Futures Forum out of these experiments. So, tell us what happened where you came on to the note the notion yeah. of yeah. transformative innovation and the three horizons. Because that was one of the first tools that you guys created, wasn't it? Uh, or am I remembering it wrong? No, no, that's, that's the origin story. There are multiple perspectives, <laughs> all origin stories. Um, I'll come on to the three horizons, but but it does it does kind of flow out of that learning through mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. um, after a while, um, although I always say at the, at the start of this, we were peddling ignorance. You know, we, we consciously went out in, in the Don Michael spirit and said, well, we, you know, we're, we're, we're the think tank that doesn't know the answer. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. We were trying to model this kind of, that, that, the, the, if this is going to be about learning, then we've got to admit some degree of not knowing. So let's start with that. And a lot of people threw us out of the room and said, well, that's very interesting, Graham. I suggest you come back when you do know. And, uh, <laughs> um, but others said, no, you know, come and join. So we were kind of wor working alongside people. And after a while, I said, actually, we do know a few things. You know, we do, we've been doing this for a while. Um, there's some of this that we can now codify right down. Um, actually, there's a whole practice here. Um, now, Three Horizons, so Three Horizons came out of, uh, we came across Three Horizons, actually, one of our, 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 our members, in fact, a couple of them, Bill Sharp and Tony Hodgson, um, came across it as a way of uh, thinking about the future, it's actually, I think it was McKinsey. Yeah, but it's a different version. I know, it's a different version. McKinsey, I mean, it's an archetype. It's, 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 it's um, as Bill Sharp says, it's three lines on a piece of paper. You know, there's, there's always, it's the, it's the I Ching. You know, we are both growing and dying at the same time. Um, you know, something's growing, something's, something's fading. Um, so the first horizon is the one that's fading away. The third horizon is the one that's growing. And there's a second horizon of transition in between. So that's simple. It's archetypical. Um, we came across that and said, ah, that works perfectly. That's exactly the kind of conversation we're in most of the time. People saying, well, we're a bit worried that things are failing. Um, we wish that the world could be this way. And yeah, there's some promising stuff that it just, it's, it's like, um, you know, I suddenly woke up and discovered I'd been speaking prose all my life. Um, you know, that people do think and see and act in Three Horizons anyway. So we, we took that framework and said that actually works for our conversations. Um, Bill Sharp and Tony Hodgson were doing a big foresight project for the British government at the time, kind of technology forward look out to 2050. <laughs> And Bill said, well, you know, after about 10 years, you're just making it up. Um, you know, what, what is the evidence for the, the, the future that will be in 2050? Well, actually, there is some evidence on what people are working on and are committed to now. Um, so that's the third horizon in the present. Actually, you can, read the, you can read the future through these three patterns in the present. The people who are concerned and trying to keep the old pattern going you know, you know, oh, that's getting a bit wobbly then. The world has moved on and it's not quite fitting right. 
um, there is some innovation. You know, the entrepreneurs, the opportunists. I'm doing a bit of this. There's an app for that. There's you know, there's money to be made here. There's some of that going on, and there are some visionaries who are saying, like here, you know, and say this is the way we're going to live. You know, they are embodying. We are embodying a different future in the present. So we can, you know, there's some real evidence that we can that we can draw on. So those that's how we started using the three horizons, not as you know, short, medium, long term. We're making some money now. What do we need to refresh to make sure we're making some money then? And how do that we do was that? The McKinsey <laughs> yeah, version. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, you know, that third horizon will be fundamentally different and based on different values yeah. from the first. Yeah. So that's that's how we started to, yeah, to use the, it. Yeah, the thing that I think, I've, I've gotten to see, Graham's a beautiful writer, he's an artist, he's a musician, but he's a brilliant practitioner, and I've gotten to see him do this in, in room. So he can, he can sit and listen to the conversation and build the Three Horizons map, right? And then show people mm -hmm. the system that they've just created. Um, I mean, which is a, just a mark of a, of a very skilled practitioner. Um, the there are, as this has, as, as you all have used it and developed it in many settings, mm -hmm. one of the things that's brilliant about it is that you can go into a community. It's not, um, because it's an archetype mm -hmm. and it's, you can go into a, any community room anywhere and yeah, do this. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, something you have to be, you know, have an academic degree to do. Um, the thing that I love about this is, there are two things I really love about this, that as you guys have developed it, there, there, there's, there's the 101, the 201, the 301, <laughs> the 401 versions of this. Um, uh, there are archetypes of how to move through the three horizons, for instance, mm -hmm. the work that you've done. But the two things that um, I really have loved about it, and, and I could even remember conversations I've been in here at Commonweal at the, at the gathering that had this quality to it, which is that um, people, it, it's the, it's the. There's a little drawing in here, of the, of the, of the how people who live on what, whichever horizon view the people on the other horizons. It's a, it's a psychology and attitude mm. thing. It's so brilliant. So, so that if yeah. you're a three horizon person, and there's more and more three horizons people in the world today, we need to get. And you know, pass capitalism and invent the next system. Mm -hmm. We need to, you know, like we need to get all these kind of very, very, much more radical, transformative ways that we all, you know, understand how much change has to happen. These are three horizon things, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a three horizon person, um, uh, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just happen to pick. I'm just gonna pick education. So you say like I'm. I'm out here, the way we educate people has to totally change. It has to be learner-centered. We have to get out of beyond this industrial system that we use, and we have to use new technology, and we have to you know, deal with people's learning disabilities and language, like all the things. You just imagine the most radical education system you could imagine out on the third horizon. And if you're out there and you're believing that, you look down your nose at the public schools and the people mm -hmm. who are in the first horizon, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is the people in the first horizon who are doing their damnedest to make sure that the kids today don't suffer feel that the resentment mm -hmm. of the fact that they're not the visionaries. And they look out at mm -hmm. the visionaries and say, those guys are completely unrealistic, right? And you get these kind of you know, binary things. And, and then you get the people on the on the on the in the middle part, right? Who are you know kind of trying to do the innovation and the pilots, and you know they're they're much more kind of realistic, yeah, right? But yeah. 
these people over here are still, you know, smoking something and you're still looking yeah. down, down your nose at these people. You know, so you get these tribes that develop mm. around the horizons without any wisdom about actually at any moment of change, there's a vital role being played by the people on every one mm. of the horizons. Mm. I mean, I've, I've seen you do that. Am I, did I completely butcher that? No, no, no. That's, <laughs> quite, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a TNS conversation with Graham Lester, Catherine Fulton, and host Michael Lerner. And then, and then the other thing that, that was brilliant that I've seen happen in a number of rooms, um, so I've been trying to proselytize this for, for a while, is, is the notion that, um, so you, let's, let's shift systems and talk about uh, the need to move to um, get cars off of gasoline, right? Mm-hmm. So First Horizon, we have gas-guzzling cars, you know. Third Horizon, maybe we're not driving cars when we're on public transportation or something, you know. In the meantime, we need electric, we're going to have electric vehicles, right? So um, what, they've de- what, what they've developed is a notion of horizon two plus and horizon two minus. So sometimes what happens is people do innovation that's really about preserving the first, the system. So an electric, very mm-hmm. large car or truck, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, or, you know that, that, that really is about extending the profits from the first horizon. Very different than the breakthrough vehicle that leads you to the third horizon, right? And so the, the what I'm what I'm trying to get mm-hmm. at is you guys mm-hmm. spent a lot of years using these tools, developing yeah, yeah. them, writing about them. There's yeah. a lot of stuff on your website. And then something happened. You said, hmm, that's very interesting. But really, <laughs> it's about that. <laughs> so you, you began to shift. You began mm. to shift about what you thought was going to be necessary yeah. to create transformation. So, Well, uh, let me tell you a couple of things about Three Horizons, um, if I can remember them. I mean, one is uh, three lines on a piece of paper. Uh, we all have we, we, this role playing. We can all role play. We can do it now. You know, we, we don't need a, a class to. You know, we've already got that. There's a first, a second, and a third horizon, and we probably we already know how to respond in those roles. Um, so that we do a lot of these kind of role playing exercises with the, the first horizon manager. You're responsible for keeping it going. It's the dominant system. You know, we need to keep the lights on. We, you know, the, we need the emergency services. We need the trains to run on time. Uh, we need the hospitals to stay open. Um, the second horizon, that's the entrepreneur, lots of energy, uh, the opportunist kind of, kind of entrepreneurial voice. We can play that voice. You know, I've got ideas for changing all of that and improving it, you know, everything. We all have that. And the visionary voice, we all have that too. Um, so particularly through the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the last stage of the pandemic, because I know it hasn't gone away, um, we did quite a lot of very rapid scanning of what the hell is going on. And we, when we, boiled, the, the, we boiled the scanning down to, they're based on the three horizons, we had four questions. Um, what's working? You know, which was, what are you noticing? That's the innovation, that's the second horizon. What's hopeful? So that's a deeper question. And people, you don't have to coach them. They know the difference between what's working and what's hopeful. You know, I'm talking to my neighbours, um, you know, so-and-so. Is doing uh, and then um, what's troubling? You know, so what, 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 that's, that's the first horizon question. And then we'd add one at the end, what's missing? 
what's missing? And it would be leadership or information or something. So just in those four questions, in 20 minutes, you've got a whole strategy. You've got a map of the landscape of everything that's going on. You've got the hopeful stuff that you want to grow. You've got the promise of the stuff that's working, where we need a bit of that. And you've got the what's missing. You know what to do. So... You know, really, we, we've got, you talk about walking into a community. I mean, mm -hmm. we're getting right down to the, 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 the bare bones there. Um, in terms of a practice, now I said, you know, we, we, the second phase of IFF's work was working with people. We did a lot of work around healthcare. And I remember um, the Transformative Innovation book actually came out of um, the healthcare system in Fife. Um, they talk about the winter crisis. You know, lots of older people fall over on the street, get into hospital, never get out again. Or it's difficult to get them out again. So, and they were doing a review at the end, as they always do. How did we get through the last winter? What are we going? How? What are we going to do to get through the next one? And they said, Well, we've concluded that we can't go on like this. We can't get through the next winter. Um, there must be a better way. So that led to let's have a three horizons conversation. What's the, you know, all of that? We we worked with them for seven years. <laughs> to transform the system till they, they got something really remarkable. And that's when I realized, actually, there's a method here. Um, so started writing the case study of that and realized, actually, no, this is generic. So we got the transformative innovation book um, as a, you know, find the third horizon. Well, no, have your vision, find the third horizon in the present, and this is how you grow it. So the seven years, you were growing the third were horizon growing the vision third horizon. across yeah. the seven years. Yes, yeah. whilst the first horizon was collapsing. Right. Know, so we talk about introducing the new in the presence of the old. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from the H2 plus, H2 minus language now, because mm -hmm. actually we need as much sustaining innovation as we can get hold of, mm -hmm. you know, to keep the system going long enough to build the new one. So I see both, you mm -hmm. know, the sustaining and the transformative innovation as important. Mm -hmm. um, what I'd missed, so we, we, we published the transformative innovation book, and then... Um, Somebody got in touch saying, uh, 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 or actually somebody bought 300 copies of this previous book. <laughs> this had come out earlier, actually, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dancing at the Edge, about competence, competence, culture, and organization in the 21st century. And I realized at that point that, um, that I'd kind of taken that as read, that we had talked about, okay, the first thing is to, is to keep your head <laughs> in, 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 overwhelming, in overwhelming times. So that was that was that 21st century competencies piece was about our natural responses to being overwhelmed, uh, the neurotic denial. It's not happening. It's not happening here. We're fine. Um, the the kind of psychotic collapse. You know, I, it's it's all beyond me. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, somebody else can sort it out. Uh, and the transformative growth response. Actually, no, this is tough. We haven't been here before. This is new. But I'm a human being. Human beings do this. You know, this is how we grow. We sit with the trouble and we, and we learn and grow our way through it. So I re that's what the 21st Century Competencies book was about. Okay, so how do you encourage that transformative response and draw the resources from ourselves to meet the moment? Um, so that, I've, I've, that came before finding the method. And we've since had to come back and say, well, wait a minute. Actually, you need to generate this, this you, you need to develop your own competence and capacity. Um, we say it is innate, but we need circumstances to reveal and encourage it to show itself in order to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to get, um, and, and the, 
but the but as we come as we come into closer to the present, mm. this the, these books that you've written out yeah, of crisis yeah, yeah. that are more you know looking at the yeah. the you know the three kinds the three kinds it's, it's worth actually just calling out that mm-hmm. you 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 talk about three kinds of emergencies. Can you just say what you think they are? So we wrote a book about the conceptual emergency, which um, is which is um, it's actually a phrase from Mary Midgley the English philosopher who talked about the conceptual emergency. So a concept is literally something that you grasp the world with. You know, you take your concept and you make sense of the world with it. And you're in a conceptual emergency when your concepts are not making sense of the world anymore. Um, That's the conceptual emergency. So that's where we thought we were. Um, There's also a real emergency. Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I suppose <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm surprised we have to <laughs> we have to labour that point. But it's surprising the number of times you know, I've, I've been in conversations. They said, "Well, we, you know, we, that's this is the denial. We don't see any of this around here. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's fine." Have you looked out of the window? So there is a real emergency. <laughs> there's a real emergency. There's a conceptual emergency, and then there, we were. We became more and more aware of the existential emergency. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, it's, it's in the conceptual emergency book as well, of course. They're, they're, these are false distinctions, but um, that the, the impact that living in this kind of world, a world that you don't understand and can't control, has psychological consequences, um, which are existential. And we've mm-hmm. got to address that as well, which is where the people piece came in. Um, so I wrote the, the, the book about 21st century competencies with Maureen O'Hara, uh, founder member of IFF, worked for 30 years with Carl Rogers, so a kind of person-centered humanist. Um, and uh, she has been saying for some time, actually, for 10 years, that the existential emergency is also a cultural emergency. You know, the existential emergency shows up at the collective level in the culture. So we are in a cultural crisis. So yeah, three emergencies, all wrapped up. And well, I, I, and this is this is bringing us now into the present because what you're thinking about is the now the existential emergency and the cultural emergency. Yes, yes. Can you say a little more about what you're what you're seeing and thinking? You were saying that, and, yeah. and we were driving over here that the yeah. neurotic and psychotic. We, we're watching the neurotic and psychotic responses grow, yeah. right? Um, You'll, you'll, you'll have got the feeling already that I'm, everything I say needs some context. <laughs> um, everything that all of us say needs some context. I think that's one of the things that's missing. That's one of the sources of the emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the context, I was, I was thinking about the Spaces for Growth book. I mean, the, the, the 21st Century Competencies book basically says, we, we are human, uh, we have huge potential, we need to be put in the right settings to allow that to show itself and develop. Donald Winnicott, um, child psychiatrist, child, you know, expert on child development, he said, you know, we, growth is a natural process in a facilitating environment. So what, what, what does the facilitating environment look like? Let's call that a culture. Um, now, we've been trying to set up facilitating. Uh, this is a facilitating environment for, for that, a space for growth. Um, so our, our interesting culture is, you know, the, the cultures that we're embedded in now, are they that kind of facilitating environment or do they facilitate 
you know, other behaviors and other values? Uh, answer, yes. Um, so that's why, that's why I'm getting interested in the cultural crisis. Um, because it's part of, it's part, I suppose, that the you know, oversimplifying, there are two ways of dealing with the anxiety. You can't hold the anxiety for long. You can't live with the anxiety for long. Two ways of dealing with it. One is to avoid it, kind of tune it out. And the other is to lean into it and say, right, I'm, I'm going to, as I say, I'm going to acknowledge this. I'm going to engage with this life. Uh, and live and grow through it. So, and I think that's what we need to do to address a poly crisis. But the worse it gets, this is the paradox in the work, in our work anyway, is that the worse things get, the more the first horizon is on its knees, um, the less it's able to hear <laughs> the message about you need to you know, wise up and grow. Um, Michael talked about the adult in the room. You know, that it would grow up. You know, we've got to be adult and responsible and humane about this. Are you up for it? Well, no, well you know, it's, it's, the, the boat isn't sinking at my end. Is it? Is a? Is a natural? I don't want to. Uh, it's a natural response, and it's there for a reason. You know, we we do need to protect ourselves from too much. You know, humankind can't bear too much reality. Uh, it's true, and that's why we protect ourselves. So I don't want to. I don't want to denigrate that. I just want to say it's not the only way. And we, we say dancing at the edge, um, not on the edge. You know, dance at the edge. Know where the edge is. Don't get too close. Know when to draw back. Don't learn alone. You know, you've, so I'm, I'm not denigrating this, especially now. Um, but those of us, one of my mentors says, those of us who know better have a responsibility to do better. You know, so those of us who are up for this, taking on the poly crisis had better move into it and do this kind of work. And and so when you think about this arc of the things that we've just been sketching mm -hmm. at a very high level that you've been working on thinking about, writing about, working with groups about, what what is what is it that you what is it that you know now that you didn't know then, if anything? <laughs> what is what what is um where do you find yourself now that's in a different yeah, yeah. place? Yeah. I, th well, I think they're hmm, first thoughts. Another of my unwritten books, because yeah, I started in, um, you know, in government, another of my unwritten books is What They Didn't Teach Me in Policy School. Um, but that, I have never written that because they didn't teach me anything in policy. <laughs> didn't teach me anything of any use in policy school. Um, they didn't, they didn't teach one of the... I came up with that title because um, of this. They didn't tell me that, they didn't teach me anything about the human system. <laughs> you know, that whatever else is in the room, you do all the post-it notes and the mapping and the, all of that. And, you know, you need to embrace multiple perspectives. They have a habit of turning up in human form. Um, and they are always working with a bunch of people. So, you know, that's that's... I think that's been impressed on me at a very early stage. I'm getting deeper into this, this kind of psychological, the psychological mechanisms of evasion at an individual and a collective level, you know, noticing in them in myself and noticing them in the culture and wondering, you know, how to work with that. You know, noticing them in my, you know, my children growing up in this world. We were talking about that on the journey here. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, the other thing is hope. Hope. 
think it's the last, the last word. I'm a writer, I love words. Um, I used to write about love, but love has kind of lost its power for me as a, as a kind of rhetorical device. And hope is the last one. You know, I'm clinging on to, I'm clinging on to that. That's still got, you know, like I said, what's troubling, what's, what's missing, what's working, what's hopeful. You know, it's still got some heft, that word. Um, so the, the, the practical hope, we talk about practical hope. Um, it relates to the psychology. Um, so I'm, I'm, I read a lot and look for sources of practical hope. I think the thing, the, I'm always reading striking, striking things about hope. The most recent was from Roberto Unger, the Brazilian uh, philosopher, um, who said, uh, hope is a result of agency, not the other way around. You see, I'd always thought, you know, get, drum up some hope and then put it into practice, you know, practical hope. So I like that, that you know, that challenge. Actually, the agency, the agency comes first and that breeds hope. I think, you know, both are mm -hmm. true, inevitably. But he had a wonderful phrase about, um, if you can just have one simple, this is back to the small change, one single simple experience of turning the tables on your circumstances then, oh, I am an agent. Um, if I can do that, what else could I do? So, you know, I'm playing with that at the moment. And I'm, I'm tuning in on agency. In know. the face of growing despair. Yeah, exactly. And despair yeah. is, what can I do? What can I do? Little me. What can I do? And... Um, uh, you know, despair, which again, literally, the roots of the word, it means the loss of hope. <laughs> despair, uh, the loss of hope. Um, and a lot of the conversation, not a lot, but a number of the conversations, people are tempted to say, I give up, you know, I, I give up. I, I just don't know what to do anymore. That's the, that's the, kind of, that's the loss of agency. Mm. One of the conversations I was having this week, I'm not a video gamer. Um, I'm, on the, I'm of the wrong generation, but um, someone's telling me about the um, the NPC. Do people know the NPC? There we are. The the non the non playing character in mm -hmm. the who just makes the game more interesting. You see, so I think there are a lot of NPCs around, or people who feel that they're NPCs. You know, I'm just, I'm here, but I'm not a player. You know, I'm not making a contribution. There's nothing I can do. You know, that is despair. Um, and we know, you know, that, that's not a good path to be on. So this, this restoration of agency, I think I wouldn't have, I suppose it was there in that founding mission, you know, restoring effectiveness in action. I didn't realize what that, you know, how deep that went. Um, and that's where, that's where I am now. You know, that's where I want to pursue this inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to, read one little thing and then I'm going to ask Michael to come and join us and bring us to the things he's thinking about. Um, the, this essay, this speech that I told you that our friend Don gave, um, he, you know, he had started with the notion of the, you know, the blind man and the elephant, right? That story. And, um, and the, he comes to the end to, at the end of his life, the eight things that he had come to believe, 
Um, and in uh, and, and, and Graham's, this is a little book of Don's essays that Graham edited about 10 years after he died and, and ends it this way. Um, he seems to have to reach a serene understanding of what it is that each of us must do to make a difference. And then this is Don. Uh, first be hopeful, hope not optimism. Hope has to do with looking directly at the circumstances we're dealing with, at the challenges we must accept as finite and vulnerable beings and activities, recognizing the limits of our very interpretation of what we're committing ourselves to, and still go on because one hopes that one can make a difference in the face of all that stands in the way of making a difference. This means acting according to what I have been calling tentative commitment. This is a really interesting notion, tentative commitment. That means you are willing to look at the situation carefully enough, to risk enough, to contribute enough effort, to hope enough to undertake your project. And to recognize, given our vulnerability and finiteness, our ineluctable ignorance, that we may have it wrong. We may have to back off. We may have to change not only how we're doing it, but doing it at all. And then do so. And finally, practice compassion. Given the circumstances I have described, facing life requires all the compassion we can bring to others and to ourselves. Be as self-conscious as possible, as much of the time as possible, and thereby recognize that we all live in illusion. We all live in ignorance. We are all struggling to cope with the existential questions of life, death, and meaning, and that we all need help facing this reality. Help that goes by the name of practicing compassion. The blind must care for the blind. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but I think, you know, I think the work that, you're, that you've done and who you are, Graham, has, you have lived those things in the most profound way. Thank you so much. Um, and what I'm going to invite us to do now, Michael, I'm going to ask Michael to join us, and then please open to any and all, you know, conversation um, about any of this, and then we might draw some more cards. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll pass them around. Mm. I'll do that. Pass them around. Here. Pick a card, any card. Pick a card, any yes. card. Just keep it and pass it around. Well, Graham and Catherine, thank you both for getting us this far. I'd like to focus in, since Ernst Slasberg, our executive director, <coughs> has made polycrisis resilience the central theme of our 40 or 50 projects around the world, health and healing, education, the arts, environment, mm -hmm. and justice. And we had been working on the polycrisis for 10 years before it exploded into public awareness. Although our work on the polycrisis conceptually really goes back to the very beginning, but its most recent iteration, um, starting with um, a number of colleagues who were involved with something called the FAN Initiative, uh, goes back about 10 years. And one of the central debates, speaking of conceptual emergency, is whether the polycrisis, or whatever else you want to call it, the metacrisis, the permacrisis, whatever, mm -hmm. is it any different from what's been happening before? Or is it simply, I think it was Neil Ferguson has argued, mm -hmm. it's just history <clears throat> continuing to unfold. 
So Tad Homer Dixon from the Cascades Institute uh, in, in uh, British Columbia, and obviously the Schwab uh, piece on the poly crisis, mm -hmm. they make a claim that the way the underlying systems in terms of systems theory are working, the polycrisis actually is something new. Uh, you know, the argument being that all these different systems uh, are interacting at increasing velocity, creating future shocks of ever greater power, and we can't get out of it, but we need to learn how to navigate it. That's the kind of conceptual theory behind this. But then there are others, uh, I think including Neil Ferguson, who say, you know, that's empty theorizing. Um, actually, this is just history continuing to unfold. So I don't know if that debate qualifies as a conceptual emergency, but I wondered where you come out. <laughs> where do I come out? It's not a debate I take part in. Good. <laughs> Um, it may be an evasion. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talked in Scotland when there was a, there was a, there was a famous report about, um, you know, I don't know what it was, child poverty or something, in which they called this admiring the problem. <laughs> you know, oh, look at that. Is, well, is it one of those or one of those? Or, um, and then there are people living the problem. You know, I'm more concerned with the people who are in it. And you can tell me that it's, you know, it's not as bad as it was you know, <laughs> a century ago or, uh, you know, that, that all the indicators are going the right way. I, I'm trying to own how it feels to live in this age um, for myself and others and to address that. And I don't know which, which of those stories will comfort me and others. We were talking earlier about, I think we all need a hopeful story. <laughs> you know, I, I know what mine is, and, it, and, it, and it's neither of those. <laughs> and it's, it's not the one that says it's okay. Actually, part of it is the one that says it's okay. You know, humanity has been here before. There are always shocks. You know, it is always uncertain. It is, you know, we, we, started, we started the IFF um, as the search for what we called a second enlightenment, looking back to the time of the Enlightenment, when people were saying, my goodness, what's going on? This is a world I don't understand and can't control. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there, you know, there's something about learning from history. There's obviously something about learning about the underpinning structures. And this is why I'm concerned with the people and the psychology. You know, what do we do with that knowledge? How do we process that knowledge? Um, Al Gore and the inconvenient truth, you know. And, and actually, Don Michael, I realised he, he, his that final essay was in, about the missing elephant, and mm. I realised actually that would be that that's 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 an elevation in consciousness to realise that the elephant's missing. Mm -hmm. You know, we all actually we all need an elephant. There are herds of elephants. Everyone's got an elephant. <laughs> They've all got an elephant in the fight. Mm -hmm. um, so can we get beyond that into this into this realm of the you know that's another that's the the real adult in the room, uh, you know who who can acknowledge that the elephant is missing, and there may be comfort in knowing, uh, well it's not as bad as it was, oh that's good, <laughs> or or um, this is why it's happening, oh that's good, um, I'm I'm trying to address the reality you know the engage the reality, not that those people are not, that's that's. You ask, what's my, my take on that? I, I try not to engage at that level. 
Well, that's an interesting response. I mean, we, at Commonweal, we do a lot of what you're describing. We're supporting a, a you know, a migrant refugee camp in Tijuana with 1,600 people yeah, living exactly. there and, you know, living on a dollar a day. And uh, we've, we've brought several million dollars into that camp to, yeah. to help. So at that level, that's the real, yeah. the, you know, what you're talking about. But I would push back a little on your saying that you don't engage in that level. Um, because, let me frame it a little differently, uh, which yeah. is, um, you, you, know, you may know that Wes Churchman, a great social thinker who mm. developed the idea or applied it in the social sciences to have a wicked problem. Yeah. And the idea of a wicked problem, which mm. is not dissimilar to the poly crisis, mm. is that it doesn't have boundaries. Yes. Yes. And no matter yeah. what you do, you can't tell whether it's going to make it any better or not. Yeah. And you can't get out of it, but at best you try to navigate mm. it. You may try to bend the arc in a better pl- way. But... Um, it seems to me, and I'm just querying you, uh, uh, here you are, a social thinker, right? And um, how can you really say, as a social thinker, that you try not to engage at that level when it's precisely, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if Tad mm-hmm. Homer Dixon and yeah, yeah, people yeah. at Cascades Institute are right, if we don't identify the underlying drivers yes, of the public yes. crisis, we won't be putting our effort in the right places. And there are millions of examples, just take climate change, where billions of dollars are being invested on some very shaky premises. Uh, So, you know, if we're going to move toward more enlightened stuff, how can we not engage? I'm I'm being deliberately provided. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I chose my words unwisely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think when when I mean, so you said, what's your view on that? Yeah. Uh, Which which I heard as an an invitation to take sides. Okay. You know, which is back to the culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, so is it this or that? You know, which you and I don't engage at that level. Okay. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to pick a side. There. Right. Okay. Uh, I often say, you know, whatever I say, the opposite is also true. No. Um, that's part of the, you know, peddling ignorance and mm-hmm. the and the Don Michael, you know, be be question askers, not answer givers. So uh, I'm. Uh, it's really difficult. Whether you know, it's really difficult um, holding both sides in our uh, multiple sides in ourselves in a conversation that demands that we pick one. Um, so I'm struggling with that. Uh, absolutely. And that's what, when I was saying about the, you know, the denial and all the rest of it, I don't, I, I, really, I do, I do not want that to come across as denigration. We need all of that. We need, all, you know, everything that anyone can bring to these challenges. Um, so I do engage, um, but it's not my work. That is not, that's not the focus of my work. I mean, obviously, we need that. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that with the with the IFF, uh, we do. We, you know, we both engage. These tend to be polarized again. You know, are you the humanistic people or are you the technical people? No, we need both of those. We do need both of those, obviously. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Graham Lester, Catherine Fulton, and host Michael Lerner. So one final question, and then we'll open it up. And there's some very interesting people in the room. Um, Without getting into 
the specifics of this moment in time, uh, it feels to many of us as if the polycrisis is continuing to accelerate in intensity mm. uh, and that the future shocks are coming faster and harder mm. and that uh, with each future shock, if we just make the list of the climate emergency and then COVID and then the Ukraine war and then artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and then the war in the Middle East, and that's just looking at it from one perspective because there are other parts of the world mm. that have a whole different narrative about it. But it seems as if these uh, future shocks are deeply intensifying. And I'm just curious yeah. whether you share that perspective and how your work enables you to cope with that and what yeah, your yeah, suggestions yeah, yeah, would be yeah. for us as yeah. a community as we experience this intensification. Hmm. I'm not sure I have an answer for the last point. I can tell you my experience. Um, so I went to a five-day conference in Denmark last summer. Actually, Ted Homer Dixon was one of the participants, amongst mm -hmm. many others, that had been convened. And um, I was on part of the facilitating group. Uh, but the people who had been invited had, had were, quote, those who have, quote, internalized collapse. Um, this is a conference on the polycrisis. On the polycrisis, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, for those, those people working on the polycrisis who have, quote, internalized collapse, um, which I think was a code for uh, taking reality seriously. Um, and that was really interesting, partly because the hope, the hopeful story still came through. <laughs> You know, although, you know, it's careful, we've got to confront the worst. We've got to confront the worst. We can, we're humans, <laughs> you know, and the lower we go, you know, hope, hope is still, you know, bubbling up there. Um, so uh, I think it is important that we do engage with that reality, you know, face, that is, that's, the, that's the growth response, to engage it, not to tune it out, not, you know, check your denial, you know, what... Um, so I think it is important to engage with it. Um, the spaces for growth, this, this is a space, you know, people talk about safe space, safe enough space to engage with the depths of the crisis. Um, so that would be one thing, to provide places that do allow you to engage with that, that reality. The second thing would be, you know, again, Don Michael quoting others, the difference between hope and optimism. You know, we can be hopeful because the future is unknown, you know, however much we... We, we analyze the deep drivers. We just don't know. And we are agents. We are agents in this too. Um, and the third thing is, as I say, hope springs eternal. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great uh, hope springs eternal. Because um, I also see, I also see, what's my source of hope? I also, that's that what's hopeful question. There's always an answer. <laughs> you know, so there is another, there is another culture that's, that's brewing and emerging. Um, that's also growing. It also has its own drivers. Uh, those are the ones that I want to feed. Not exclusively, you know, not to tune out the reality, but to notice that there is that other culture that we can align with and that we can support. But, um, it has a final, a final essay on hope, uh, Radical Hope, Jonathan Lear, but also Terry Eagleton wrote a, wrote a book called Hope Without Optimism, in which he called optimism the enemy of hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I do play the cello, and he quotes in his book, 
um, Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus, where um, you know the composer who's made the pact with the devil composes this kind of um, gothic mass um, to lead everyone into catastrophic um, depression. And, uh, and he does the final performance of this as he's packed with the devil. Um, and, and it kind of drifts away into annihilation and silence, um, finishing, I quote, with a single high G on the cello. And that's it. That's the end of the world. And he said, but after the note died away, you know, what's that, what's that that's in the room? Hmm. You know, he failed. He failed to, to destroy hope. Huh. See, I, I read the whole of that novel just to find that passage. <laughs> it was right at the end. Um, so that, so that, that's what gives me hope. You know, it's, it, he's always there. He's always there. And even when everything is, else is destroyed. Right. Yeah. So, Graham, you, um, so you're asking about the acceleration. Is it accelerating? I think that's our experiences mm. that it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one, one of the, when you started thinking, I have a little list, that you yeah, said yes. me one time of you were beginning to look at the, yeah. what do we do in a polycrisis. There's one here that's really interesting. Polycrisis is not collapse. Yeah, yeah. Crumble wisely. Yeah. Could you just say a little bit well, about that? Was, <clears throat> that, was, that was something I learned at the polycrisis conference. That, um, again, we're into binaries. <laughs> You know, is this collapse or is it not? Do you recognize this as collapse? Then you're in. Is it not collapse? You're, you're out. Um, I mean, the different systems are collapsing at different rates and in different places at different times. Uh, so I like that idea of, yeah, actually they're, they're crumbling. They're, they're crumbling around us. Uh, and therefore we can crumble wisely, says, so which ones do we need to support? Which ones do we need to prop up? You know, the, actually that one, that one that's crumbling, thank goodness, <laughs> you know, because that was not doing us much. That, that has no place in the future. So let's, you know, let's protect people, make sure that they don't get crushed by the rubble, but let it crumble. This one, no, we absolutely need this to help with the transition. So don't, so that was just, yeah, get, getting a more sophisticated notion of, well, if we're going to internalize collapse, let's take that seriously. You know which bits, which, which bits, bits. Yeah. So maybe we need to advance some of the collapse. So questions in the room. I think we have a mic to go around and and if you have a card that you want to share, what was in your on your card too? <laughs> this looks like there was a, a hand right here. Yes. And please say your name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Jim Quay, and um, I want to suggest a slight alteration in something that you said, mm. which may have conceptual implications which I'll <laughs> let you and that was that you said hope was the absence of despair was the absence of hope yeah uh, I did a literary dissertation on despair uh -huh. and found that it's not the absence of hope it's the reversal All right. of hope and the reason that's important is let's take uh, Victor Frankl yeah, talks yeah. about someone in the concentration camp who was convinced that in four weeks the Allies would be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was his hope. Yeah. The Allies didn't arrive, yeah. and he died two weeks later of yeah. despair. Yeah. So we have to be careful what our yeah. hopes are because they can turn on us if yeah. they don't appear. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I like that. I like that. Thank you. Um, there's a, there's another there's another nice book by Frank Commode about uh, called The Sense of an Ending, mm-hmm. where he talks about um, uh, you know the clock ticking. He says we know how the clock goes. It goes tick tock tick tock tick tock. He says actually it doesn't, does it? It goes tick 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 <laughs> tick tick. And um, uh, and 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 he tells that story because he says you know we're humans. We like to have a talk, <laughs> you know. We like to have a talk, <laughs> and he talks about doing time, doing time. So, you know, the prisoners, you know, one, two, three, four, five, doing time. Now, if the, and and you're right, actually, if they say, uh, you know, when I've got to twenty-five, I'll be out. Um, that's their talk, <laughs> and if it turns out to be a tick, they're lost. You know, this is this kind of so. I, I, um, I don't know where, where I'm going with that, but I, I agree with you. And it, yeah, the, the taking away of hope. Is, so we're talking about navigating the polycrisis, something about keeping going. You know, there's something about that routine of the tick tock. You know, anyway, that's. Yeah. Thank you. If I could just add one more thing. I looked at two different literary characters. One made it out of despair and one right, didn't. So right. what was the difference? One was, by the way, Dr. Faustus, but it was uh-huh. Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Right. <laughs> he knew he was damned at the end of the play. He knew he was. Yes, yes. Because he was hoping for heaven. Yeah, yeah. He lost that. He loses everything. Mm. The other is uh, from a work no one reads anymore, Milton's Samson Agonistes. Samson, at the end of that play, doesn't know where he's going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he has comforters trying to tell him, yeah. oh, you're going to be okay. He doesn't know where he's going, and that enables him to go. Yeah, yeah. So this fits back in your not knowing. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. As they say, you know, keep breathing, put one foot in front of another. <laughs> <laughs> Comments, questions? Yes. Here. Yeah. I was fascinated, Graham, thank you. You mentioned casually, um, after seven years of working with a hospital system, In Fife, is that Mm, what you said? mm. And you said after seven years, you were actually able to turn the systems around and to come up with some success. I would love to know a little bit more about that story because I'm always looking for stories where a long project turns out to be successful in the end. The first first would be a disclaimer that I think that what what we what we what that was about was a cultural shift, a shift in the culture, and the culture lives in people. Um, and I'm not sure if the culture is as strong as it was at the point where I wrote that book after after what seven ten years. It's still there, but it has you have to keep attending to it, um, which is the point about the acceleration and the multiple crises and all the other things that are going on. Uh, that affect the health system. The single insight um, uh, no, two two things about that story. One is that they started with a Three Horizons conversation. It said, you know, particularly around the care of older people, um, what's our third horizon look like? Well, it doesn't look like one in which they're in hospital the whole time. It looks like one in which which they are living fulfilled lives in, in and, and acknowledging that they're coming towards the end of their lives. <laughs> you know, it's this, this confronting reality. They're living a real 
a full and real life and a fulfilling life. Um, so that was a third horizon vision. How can we support that? Somebody there said, that sounds very much like the system that I was hearing about in a conference in Germany a few months ago uh, in Alaska, the native Alaskan Nuka system of care, uh, where they do. Um, they have a different version of, you know, to be healthy is to be in a pattern of healthy relationships and in particular to be related to the Nuka, which is the vast living system of life. You know, if you're connected into the Nuka, then you will be healthy. And so, oh, that sounds interesting. So a bunch of people from Fife went to Alaska, some Alaskans come to, came to Fife, and off we go. So it was, that, it was that shift, it was that insight. You know, so how do we connect people into living <laughs> rather than treating or even caring? Um, and again, you could tell the transformation was happening because that's where the, the professionals involved this is difficult work. They have to confront, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, with the best will in the world, I, was, I thought I was doing the right thing. But, um, you know, I, I should have been doing this. So there's a kind of personal shift that happens. And then you have to get that into the infrastructure and the paperwork and the way things are done around here. And then it has to maintain itself over time. So any, anyone can do it. But this is why, you know, the emphasis on the people you know, the strength to see that through and, to, and, and for all of them to do their best work and not to, yeah, not to pretend. So it can be done, particularly in the caring. I mean, that's what this place is all about, particularly in the, in, in the, the so-called caring professions and settings, schools, hospitals, prisons. Mm -hmm. I would just love to encourage some of the younger uh, members of our community who are listening to give us <laughs> some perspectives. They tend to be in the front row. I, I can't hear me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, mine is more of just a share of gratitude. Um, I am so deeply and pleasantly surprised, Graham, that so much of the arc of what you shared is around questioning and deep inquiry and um, being in a position of knowledge and leadership um, from a place of curiosity and the power in that. Um, because Adam and I, as we were walking, um, commented on how deeply we, we revere Catherine, um, who mm -hmm. I've known for now almost eight, nine years, um, who I am in deep reverence of as an elder and a, and a mentor figure, but what we commented on is one of the qualities about you that is so admirable is you're such, you're so curious mm -hmm. and the way that your curiosity comes off is so um, authentic and, um, and, and genuine in nature. So to see people of um, an elder generation who are so knowledgeable, who have lived through the systems that are crumbling for us mm -hmm. <laughs> and that we are mm -hmm. navigating um, to be such in such curiosity um, is really inspiring. And I just, I just appreciate it so much that, um, that it, it gives this element of hope of like, oh, okay, it's not everybody out there is still just like, this is how you do it and this mm -hmm. is what you do. And it, but that like, we can be in this hope, which is inevitably mm -hmm. the unknown mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I really, really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you for that. I, I just want to say, 
one of the most extraordinary things I ever learned in my life, I learned from you. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, I, 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 what I yeah. love about Graham's work and the and the direction it's taken, and the and I think what Commonweal is so dedicated to is, we, you know, we have to unlearn, we have to learn, we have to grow, we have to change, because all this, the ways we've been and what we've been doing in the face of this accelerating place. There's so many assumptions we have mm. to question. And, you know, it's a, 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 we can only learn from each other, you know. And it's a, a, the, the reason I walked, I wanted to walk through the arc of this 20 years that, that Graham has had is that, I mean, and we just barely touched the surface. I mean, it, you know, of like, what does it look like to keep questioning year after year after year and and have it come to new insights, which of course is what you've been doing, mm-hmm. what Oren's been doing. It's not, you know, but I just think it it takes, the, it takes so long. It takes, you have to work so hard to get even the most fundamental insights. You know, mm-hmm. what, it's the thing I loved. I mean, you know, I have this, this talk that, that we keep referring to that Don gave, this is a guy who was one of the most brilliant guys on the planet. He gave a speech at the end of his life about how much he didn't know mm-hmm. and about we need to be the blind leading the blind. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. so incredibly moving. Um, I bet you have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a, she, she wrote, she, 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 I gave her a copy of your book and she wrote me a beautiful little note about it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Graham, for this amazing conversation. And um, I'm Serena. And a reflection that I was sitting with while this conversation was unfolding was, um, like, what would it look like to be in this conversation and to um, work towards so, so many of these threads you've talked about with people of different social locations, um, you know, people currently incarcerated mm-hmm. and at the border and at end of life. And yeah. I just have this like image of, you know, yeah. uh, a collective that is really living at the edges of and phrase of so many of these <laughs> places of collapse. Mm. Um, so it's less a question, more of a longing and a wondering of how, how do we create those um, facilitating mm-hmm. environments that can can bring that uh, depth of experience together. One of the things that I emailed Catherine about was in reading your latest book, how awesome it was that amidst all the challenges and just chaos of our times, you know, you, you said, um, there's so many skills that yes, need to be learned in tactics, probably a whole long list, but really what I want to instill is like, we have what we need. And just that idea of we already mm-hmm. are what we need. We have that latent mm-hmm. ability. And so I was just um, hoping you might speak a little bit more to, to that. Yeah. Well, just very, very quickly, because I'm, I'm, well, we're here for the weekend. <laughs> this, is, this, this is actually why I'm here. You know, I am curious. Uh, I just want to tune into the conversation. So this is this is this is great. So um, uh, and I spent a few days with Maureen O'Hara last week, kind of tapping into this question of the existential crisis. 
Um, so that, that's an act of faith, actually, a, a statement of faith <laughs> that uh, we have what we need. I think it was Carl Rogers who said, who you are is enough mm -hmm. if you can just be that. <laughs> if you can just be that. You know, and that's the space, you know, so what, so I'd love to, uh, you know, we can talk some more about, you know, engaging people on the edge. Can they be that? You know, we, we have to do quite a lot of work to allow them, you know, to create the space in which they can be that with others, including with me, you know, I know that, um, you know, I walk into the room, there are a whole set of assumptions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So there's, there's some work about that, but who, who we are is enough if we, if we can just be that. Um, Winnicott, you know, natural process of growth, his wonderful essay, Delinquency as a Sign of Hope, said if, you, if you're rebelling against your circumstance, you've still got it. You know, you, you, this is not, no, the life force is in me. And, and um, you know, conforming to that, so uh, forget the life force, I'll just, you know, that's, that's not the sign of hope. So, so I, yeah, I, I, the other thing I was talking to Maureen about was, um, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of people, having lived through the 60s, 70s, the last great flourishing of this kind of um, energy, uh, she was reflecting on that and, and the difference today. Um, I spent some time Hong Kong, China, and the Chinese have a different view of, you know, of everything flows, the silent transformation, the idea that you could be a change agent. <laughs> you know, you're not. You're a participant in something that's constantly moving. You've just got to read the landscape better. Um, so Maureen was talking about, um, you know, youth rebellion. <laughs> you know, the system. Well, you've got to fight the system in her day. And saying, I think it's a bit different today. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that you know that that system it's it is crumbling. <laughs> we we talk about you know you've got to have the first horizon to keep the lights on, but the first horizon is sitting in the dark now. You know, it is crumbling. It, it, we don't have to fight it. I mean, the opposite is also true. Those who want to fight it, please fight it and help it crumble. <laughs> uh, but it's not the it's not the only option. You know, there's an option of now aligning. Yeah aligning with this, this equally growing new culture. Mm. Um, so that's what, that's what I'm in, interested in hearing that from Maureen, you know, the voice of her experience, mm. that no, this time is different. Um, so I love that I'm, I'm playing with this notion of we're not talking, we don't need change agents, we need alignment agencies, mm. agents. Mm. You know, let's, 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 let, let's let that culture reveal itself, you know, just as we let the person reveal themselves. And align with it. Yeah, you have your. You have the, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my name is Kalyani, and I was invited to be here by Sanj. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Graham and um, Catherine and Michael, for the conversation. Just wanted to respond to Sanj. You know your gratefulness and appreciation for the curiosity, especially from our elders here. You know, to have that curiosity, I think, inspires all of us as young people, too, to continue to be curious and ask questions, not to only have answers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the answers have been the problem <laughs> all along, mm. and the questions are what yeah. we need more of. Um, to respond to Serena, you, you know, you said, um, uh, we have what we need. <sighs> yeah, the curiosity actually I feel is leading us to recognize that, that we do have what we need. 
Um, and it's the answers actually all around us. And that's what I discovered in my relationship with people who live on the land, who live closely with the land, who are in alignment, mm-hmm. you know, with the land and the water. Mm-hmm. They know how to live. Mm-hmm. They don't feel out of control. They don't feel they are lacking yeah, yeah. anything. We lost control and we felt lacking when we lost our connection to the land. So I think we do have what we need. We have the answers right here on this land. Um, So I'm looking forward to us this weekend, you know, truly listening Mm -hmm. to one another um, and also to people who actually live in close connection to that land Mm -hmm. because we have so much to learn Mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Um, does anybody does anybody move to share their card? Mm-hmm. Anybody get a card they want to share? Um, so what was the one you added to uh-huh. the original deck? <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting for that one. Oh, yes. Yes, I sneaked it in. Um, it's, it's a card that says, Psychological necessity trumps rationality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, I mean, all of these, are, that, that came after the first two years, but it was a, it was a recurring theme, you know, psychological, <coughs> psychological necessity will trump rationality. Yeah. And, um, you know, particularly in recent years, we found ourselves drawing, you know, oh, that's what's going on. This is psychological necessity that's, that's yeah. having us operate this well, way. Well, let's, let's stop, let's, let's end. Um, uh, I happen to know that your favorite card in the deck... <laughs> is I believe climb the mountain that isn't there. That's right. <laughs> Which seems like a really good thing for a third horizon time and a time of curiosity and exploration. Yeah. And so, tell us what does that mean and why is that your favorite card? Oh, that's uh, really interesting because while I was waiting for you this morning <laughs> uh, to come and pick me up, I shuffled the deck and drew a card. And you know which one it was. Was it really? <laughs> it was. It was. was it really it that was one? It was climbing the mountain, isn't wow. it? Wow. It was. Wow. It often happens this way. Either. That's why I say we're just aligning with the, with the landscape. Um, and that came out of a conversation. All of these came out of a conversation. That came out of a conversation about um, um, Hillary talking about climbing Everest. Uh, was it Hillary or Mallory? One of them, anyway. Why did you? I think it was Mallory, actually. Yeah. Why? Why did you climb Everest? Why did you want to climb Everest? Because it's there. Um, and we said, well, we're, you know, we're we're climbing a mountain that isn't there. You know, we're 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 kind of we don't know where we're going. <laughs> you know, like Samson, we don't know where we're going, but we know that there's something beyond here that might be it might be useful to discover. So that's. It's the, yeah, it's about pioneering, you know, out into the unknown. Um, and I've been, I've been fascinated by climbing metaphors and stories ever since. Um, and there, are not, there were a number of deaths a few years ago on Everest, because now it's like, you know, <laughs> there are big queues. You see the big queues, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You see the big queues of people trying to climb Everest. And uh, a, a climber was saying, well, you know, they, they've got it all wrong. You know, they book off a couple of weeks in the calendar, pay the money, go up there, and, you know, they've just got no idea what they're doing. Uh, and it is dangerous. And they said the, the way to climb Everest is to climb high and sleep low. Mm-hmm. See, so you've got to get as high as possible and then, you know, go back 
while you've still got some energy and get a base, you know, get a camp and recover. And then you climb high and sleep low. Um, so that too has, has become part of the metaphor. So we're climbing the mountain that isn't there, uh, but we're climbing high and sleeping low. We, we are, we're, we're taking care of ourselves on, on the way. Does that help? That's a good, good way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Graham Lester, Catherine Fulton, and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water can heal my body, water can heal my soul.